Welcome to Losing My Religion, a podcast for and about you. It is the audio diary of a humanist celebrant, a humanist celebrant who used to be a student for the Roman Catholic priesthood. I've come a long way. When I'm writing my journal, I don't have a structure. It's just me thinking out loud on the page. So to apply that to this podcast, it needs to be me simply thinking out loud into the microphone. I have been recording very slowly the audiobook version of my memoir. I thought I would get three episodes recorded per day, but so far I've only been able to do one per day. Each episode is about 800 words. I'm sure I could improve this. I hope I do. This time last year, I was still writing my book. The deal I made with myself last year, I always do a dry January. I've done it for years now. But last year, I decided that I wouldn't drink alcohol again. And I do like a G&T and I love a pint of Guinness and I like a whiskey. But I decided that I wouldn't drink again until I had finished my book. It proved It proved to be a very effective motivation, and I finished it ahead of my schedule. Now, mind you, it has been 25 years in the making. I am very proud of my book, really proud of it. I have had for decades now a deep conviction that somehow my story is important. Obviously, it's important to me. I'd like to think it's important to people close to me. But why do I think other people need to know it? It's been all over the news this week in Ireland how pregnant women were sent to have their babies in secret. I mean, the mothers were children in many cases, as young as 13. But you see, here's the thing. This diary is not, nor is my book, about blaming anybody. And here is a cause for my shame. As a pious aspirant priest... I can't be sure how old I was. It was certainly in the early days in the seminary. So I joined the Mars Fathers in 1980. And I'm guessing it was within three years of that. So at most I would have been 21. And for anybody who's read the book, they will know I was an exceedingly innocent 21-year-old. I was more like a 14 or 15 or 16-year-old and an immature one at that. But somebody I knew had had, I think, their third baby outside of marriage. And as far as I know, the father of each child was a different man. And as a biased, prejudiced person that I was, I wrote to her suggesting that she give up the third baby for adoption. I did that. And as far as I know, she read my letter having just given birth. And it's easy for me to say that I was a product of my Catholic, well, can you call it thinking? Catholic non-thinking. I was a product of that. I was a product of regurgitating stuff that I had accepted, believed in, resigned myself to, thought was true. Why would I have to bother with thinking for myself when the church had done all the thinking for me, when the church had over 2,000 years come up with the right answer to all of these human moral 
dilemmas and issues. And for that reason, well, I for one can't blame nuns, priests, prejudiced parents, society. I mean, this is my interest in my story. It's more me battling with myself, me trying to understand how a reasonably intelligent person can abdicate my responsibility for thinking and just accept the thinking of a church and of society. Like that's that's what drives my interest. That's why for 25 years, <laughs> For 25 years, I have tried and finally succeeded in writing my book in my gut, I don't believe. Because I wanted to see how, not only how did I finally and slowly and gradually extract myself from religious thinking, but also like what is it in me and other human beings that, what's the word I'm trying to look for? It's like you siphon off your thinking to an authority. I mean, the same ghastly thing that has hoodwinked 70-something million people to vote for Trump. How can that be? How can reasonably intelligent people just abdicate their responsibility to vote for such a moron? As I say, my whole interest, if I have anything to contribute from my life and my life's lesson, of learning to think for myself. It has got to be an honest self-examination. The unexamined life is not worth living. So I finally signed up to Facebook. I have avoided Facebook like the plague, but I thought I probably would need to do it to connect with people. There's no point writing a book and then burying it. I wrote it to be read. I, I wrote it in the first instance so I would read it. Anyway, I am proud of it, very proud of it. And I've no idea its future history, whether it'll just be a memoir written by an Irish guy in the early 2020s. It's about truth, seeking truth. It's also about self-knowledge and coming into an awareness of oneself and daring to feel how you feel and to own it. Daring to think as I thought. Daring to respect my understanding. Daring to be faithful to my personal, honest judgment. And for me, it took nine years in a seminary to learn the hardest way that that is the only way to become myself. It's the only way that human beings become themselves. It does take strength. It took strength of character for me to learn that hard way, to set aside other people's opinions. Like I was 27 and learning that lesson. 27. Unquestionably, that lesson, that hard, hard life lesson was the most important lesson in my life. One person who read my book, it was Christmas time, and he told me that he had a present, a book wrapped for his son, and that after he finished reading my book, he unwrapped it and he wrote on the book to his son that he loved him. If I get no other review of my book and if no other positive outcome comes from my book, I will be happy with that one outcome. There was I, like when I say innocent, I was embarrassingly innocent. 
right up to my mid-twenties. And I had this inner battle between what I call in my diary, my inner workings, thoughts, feelings, doubts, which were me, my essential self. And I kept repressing them. I kept confronting them with the teachings of the church, with decisions of my superiors, with advice from my spiritual director. In my, f- in my favour, I will say that yes, there were days when I believed or moments when I believed, but equally, I also disbelieved. So I earned my living as a, as a writer for many years writing for the Irish Times and other publications and other books. But of all of the books I have written and of all of the hundreds of articles and columns which I've had published, I would burn them all to save this memoir. There is a profound personal inner pride and satisfaction and sense of fulfilment in the publication of this book. In fact, I'm actually feeling a bit emotional just saying that. I was talking to one friend who who rang me when she had read the first hundred pages and she was just wanting to let me know that she was enjoying reading it and, and she is a serious reader. I was very happy to receive her phone call. And as as she and I spoke on the phone about my book, we got talking to the part of the book where I talk about my dad getting a stroke. And as we spoke, my friend and I on the phone, we got talking about that episode of the the demise, the deterioration, the decline and the death of my father. I got emotional. And there are other sections like that in the book that surprise me, you know, at this remove. And she told me that she too had cried at that section of the book. It's funny how different readers pick out different elements of the book that even I wasn't particularly aware of. A journalist friend of mine, he used to write for the Irish Times. And one of the things that he brought to my attention was that it was a a Dublin book that I meander around Dublin. The entire action takes place in Dublin. I'm born in Donny Carney in North Dublin. The seminary Mount St. Mary's is in Milltown in South Dublin. And I go to UCD and I'm in Montrose recording a documentary. I'm in Grafton Street. I'm cycling around Wicklow. And then I have a year living in Leeson Street in Dublin. My daughter, Sarah, is reading it and she sent me a message last night to say she's reading it and she's proud of me. So that's kind of nice. As I said to her, by the time she gets to the end of the book, she will know her father probably better than most daughters or sons will ever know a parent. Somebody in my book club asked me, how do I feel about revealing so much about myself, being so honest in the book? Well, I just feel that when you are personal, when I am personal, you're universal. I really believe that, that if I can get in touch with my humanity, that it can, I was going to say inspire, I don't want to be presumptuous. It can nudge the reader, perhaps, into self-awareness, but I don't want, that sounds so arrogant or full of myself. And when you read the book, I hope if you read the book, you will know I am not a hero, far, far from it. That's not the point. It's an expiration in humanity. 
and how I, this particular human, was embedded in my mind and in my thinking and feelings and actions within a religious mindset and how I gradually began to trust my doubt. Writing a book, you know that feeling when something very significant happens in your life, maybe somebody dies and you walk out of the hospital and perhaps you hear people laughing outside a pub or you realise that there are babies being born today. There are people getting a hit single in the charts. The whole rich mix of humanity happens simultaneously, just at different times for different people. And yes, the significance of each and every one of us. Here we go. This is episode 21 from In My Gut, I Don't Believe. In July 1981, novices attended a charismatic youth jamboree in Artane, close to my home. A neighbour saw me and rang my sister, who arrived and told me Dad's health had deteriorated that morning. I went home immediately. My father was in bed, looking better than I expected. He was able to chat and sit up. I had in my pocket the rosary beads he had given me when I joined the Marists. We used it to pray together, his holding them for one decade and me taking them for the next. There was a tangible, shared sense of finality. An ambulance arrived and he was taken to Mercer's Hospital. I spoke to a nurse, worried that they mightn't realise how unwell he was because he looked all right. Mr Armstrong, we realise your father's condition is serious. That night, when I returned to Milltown, I updated the superior, but shrugged off confrères' queries. Alone in the chapel, I cried my eyes out and thought of the letter that I had written to him so recently and his treasured reply. Father Hannan told me I could visit my father as often as I liked, despite the normal seclusion of novitiate. It was a difficult time. Fear erupted every time the phone rang. Once, while hitching a lift to the hospital, Charles Mitchell picked me up. He was the first ever newscaster on RTE television in 1961, and he had cried announcing the death of US President Kennedy. You looked desolate. I couldn't pass you by. I wasn't certain it was him. You sound like Charles Mitchell. That's because I am. I visited my dad frequently during those weeks. He shared chocolate biscuits and sweets with me. One day, as we both sat on the side of his bed, he said he had a headache. His words were slurred. Unable to cope that day with his decline, I left shortly afterwards. Next day, my school friend and fellow novice, John, told me my mother had phoned. Your dad took a bad turn during the night. Come on, I'll drive you in. My father was lying in bed. When the nurse told him I had arrived, he tried to rise from the pillow and talk. 
he rose but fell back, letting out a loud, bellowing groan. Horrible words arose in my mind describing that sound, which I thought I could never express. Dad's face was sunken on one side. When a doctor opened his eyes, his pupils were like pinpricks. He had taken a massive stroke. I was distraught to see and hear my father, once strong and physically powerful, this manly man who had lugged Guinness barrels about and worked on their trucks, barges and cranes, struck down. Outside in the corridor, I wept. A neighbour told me to stop and be strong for my mother. Although she meant well, I resented her intervention. I needed to express my distress, not bury it. Back in the ward, my mother took my father's stroke disarmingly well. She joked with him about the garden and the dog. He smiled showing he understood. My Uncle Joe and I sat beside him. Dad became restless and tried moving his arm. He manoeuvred his hand to his right eye and tried to open his eyelid but couldn't. Uncle Joe did it for him. Dad smiled. I held his hand and he tightened his grip. But by later that day we lost more of him. He could no longer indicate even if he could hear us, or whether he knew we were there. At one point, tears fell from his eyes. With no change in my father's condition, I returned to Milton that night. Recently ordained, Father Paddy Stanley came to my room. Talk to me, he said. I couldn't speak. Get it out. Here was the permission denied me earlier. Come on, he persisted. I spoke aloud those horrible words conceived earlier. He brayed like a donkey. As I write this, aged 56, and as I read it, aged nearly 59, those words are still not lost their power to upset me. Good man, whispered Paddy. Father Dennis Green arrived in my room and sat beside me. I lay my head on his shoulder and cried. A confrere arrived with tea and toast. I learned prayers had been said at Mass and evening prayer, and the community had gathered to say the rosary for us. Next day, when I came back from the hospital, my room had been tidied, the bed made, my shirt had been washed and ironed, and an unsigned card lay on my pillow. We are with you, Joe, at this difficult time. I don't know who did these kindnesses, but I was buoyed up by them. The support of the community deepened my sense of belonging and wanting to remain 
all my life in the society of Mary. In My Gut, I Don't Believe, a memoir by Joe Armstrong is now available on Amazon and can be ordered from any bookshop in the world. Please let me know where you are on your journey of thinking for yourself, trusting your inner workings, respecting your doubts. You can email me at podcastlosingmyreligion at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at losingmyrelig1. That's at losingmyrelig and the figure one. Please consider supporting our podcast at patreon.com forward slash losingmyreligion. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash losingmyreligion. And of course, I'd love if you read my book, In My Gut, I Don't Believe, available as a paperback and a Kindle ebook, and hopefully before too long as an audiobook. Thank you for listening. Keep safe. Keep loving each other. Happy days. <laughs>